0: Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. So Titus chapter 1, four verses of Scripture, just focusing on the introduction this morning. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, And their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which god who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which i have been entrusted by the command of god our savior to titus my true child in a common faith grace and peace from god the father and christ jesus our savior And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy God, this morning you see our needs. You see our hearts. I pray this morning that your divine word, which is already inspired. I don't have to pray for its anointing. I just pray that you would anoint our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your God-breathed word. I pray this morning, Lord, grant us direction. Secure our hearts In the faith we ask this in the name of our lord jesus christ amen you may be seated we talk about how all of the bible is divinely inspired and it is it's god breathed it is the word of god but there are some parts of scripture that we focus on more than others there are some books in the bible that we focus on more than others If I was to ask the average man on the street or Christian in the pew to give me a brief overview of the book of Haggai, if I were to ask most preachers to give me an overview of the book of Haggai, um, they'd probably struggle as would I. In the New Testament, we focus on a lot of Paul's writings, uh, his magnum opus, the book of Romans, Ephesians, and so on. But... This little letter to Titus doesn't get a lot of attention. And to our own detriment, because in these few words, three chapters that we divided into, it is rich for our lives. To come in my life, all the rough edges and things that need to be cleaned up in my life is also being revealed before the foundation of the world. In other words, if you are saved, you cannot lose. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who were called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here is my salvation. Here is my hope. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who He called, He also justified. And those who He justified, He also glorified. You and I are in the process for the work of your final salvation that will come when you are glorified in your own death and resurrection. Because in verse 10, Jesus abolishes death and brings life and immortality. You cannot lose if you are in Christ. So that's all Second Timothy chapter 1. Paul's writing all of that to Timothy. Now what Paul writes to Titus, he echoes and reiterates what Paul teaches us in 2 Timothy. We've been chosen before the foundation of the world. He writes the same thing in the book of Ephesians. I mean, there's three places at least where Paul starts out letters and says, to the church at Ephesus, to my son in the gospel, Timothy, to my common faith brother, Titus. He starts all of these in the first chapter and says, you're chosen before the foundation of the world. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he wrote to the Ephesians, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here it is, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. I emphasize this. Because I think sometimes there is this misconception that somehow God had to have a plan B, an afterthought. Like, He had this plan in the Old Testament with the law, but Israel couldn't get their act together, so He had to come around and do this other... No, God has always had one redemptive plan and one redemptive purpose. There is one covenant people of God. The ethnic nation of Israel in the Old Testament... The church fulfilling that in the new. So why is this this relevant to my life in 2023 on a Monday morning or a Thursday afternoon? It's because you are secure in Him. You cannot be touched. You are in Christ. Nothing can snatch you out of His hands. Jesus said, this is more and more relevant in our day, Jesus said, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. And you will be hated by everyone because of my name. We live in a very unusual time in the United States, the past couple hundred years, two, three hundred years in this nation, where to be a Christian, to be a believer, has been something that is to your advantage. It may get you elected to office. It may make you popular in your town. Now that's changing. That tide is changing. And we have people running around pulling their hair out going, we have our rights. Like We, we have our rights. We are an anomaly. We are the exception to the rule. To be a believer, by and large, for the last 2,000 years, to say I believe in Jesus has been to put your life at risk. It is to be persecuted. We are the exception, not the rule. So look at what Jesus says. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. Some of you will be put to death. And then he says, and yet not even a hair of your head will perish. They might kill you, but they can't really harm you. You're untouchable. There have been believers who have been filleted alive like a fish burned at the stake. They would take green wood and burn believers at the stake to make the fire go a little slower and last longer and make the punishment as as cruel as possible. And Jesus said, they might do that, but yet not even a head on your hair will perish. Dallas Willard in his wonderful book The Divine Conspiracy wrote, "We have no reason ever to be anxious." This present world is a perfectly safe place for us to be. I recognize how strange, even strained, that sounds. But that is only because the entire posture of our embodied self and its surroundings is habitually inclined toward physical or earthly reality as the only reality there is. Hence, to treasure anything else must be wrong. It is to rest on illusions. If we are united with Christ, dwelling in Him, it was secured before the foundation of the world and the implications for our life today are massive. Jesus would say, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. As kingdom people, I hope, I pray that we live differently than the world. We think differently. We value different things than people who are not part of the kingdom. Our lives ought to have a marked difference, an aroma that is drastically different. Because if our lives reflect what the lives of everybody else around us looks like, why in the name of common sense would anybody look at us and say, what is the reason for your hope? unless we live lives that are drastically different. Verse 3. At the proper time, God manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The first thing we see here is the idea of God... As our Savior he says that and then as Christ Jesus as our Savior I will never pass up an opportunity to point out how in Scripture Jesus is divine the deity of Christ and why do we do that is because the deity of Christ is constantly being detracted from Jesus is fully divine he is God so here both father and son are called Savior The Father is electing His people before the foundation of the world. The Son of God manifest in the flesh, living among us, and dying to save God's people. He is acting as Savior in the incarnation. So God's redemptive purpose and God's redemptive plan has existed throughout all of eternity. There is no plan B. All of this has been set up by God. We are not an afterthought in the mind of God. He will hold us fast. Now, later in chapter 2, which we'll get to, there's only three chapters, we'll get to maybe next week, Paul will be more and more explicit about this idea. Verses 11 through 14 For the grace of God has appeared, he's referring to Jesus. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, Godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Verse 11, Jesus is God's grace embodied. Verse 14, Jesus is our Redeemer. And we'll go deeper down that road in the future. But for now, let's go back to verse 3 in our text. I'm going to read it one more time. At the proper time, God manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. At the proper time, let's just look at that, that that first phrase. At the proper time, God sent His Son into the world not one day too early, not one day too late, at the proper time god's timing is impeccable there is a lot of discussion on exactly what year jesus was born the calendar was perfect he would have been born in the year zero but it's not we're off a little bit so anywhere from three to six bc somewhere in that range i'd lean towards three or four bc jesus was born i don't know No one knows exactly what month of the year he was born, but I do know this. Whenever it was, it was at the proper time. It's when God ordained Christ to be sent into this world. God's timing is always perfect. He never makes a mistake. This is true for everything in life. God is in control. If there's one overarching idea I want you to walk out of here this morning with is that God is in control. I sat at my desk writing this sermon. I looked up when I got to this point, and there on the bookshelf, I mean, it's right in front of my eyes, it's a book entitled Providence written two years ago. 754 pages on the providence and divine sovereignty of God. And I looked at that and I thought, uh, I've not read it. I have a... I think I have more books lined up right now to read. If I never buy another book, I think I have enough lined up to read to last me until I die. I'm going to need to live an extraordinarily remarkable, newsworthy life to read everything that I ever want to read. But that's on the list. 754 pages. Just biblical exposition. Digging into the text. God is sovereign divine providence. And I looked at that and I said, that 754 pages is puny because you could write and speak and exult endlessly on the rock solid reality of God's sovereignty. He rules and he reigns and he is in control. Abraham Kuyper cried out It's one of the most famous statements on the sovereignty of God. And he said this many, many decades ago, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. God is in control. I woke up yesterday to the news that Israel was attacked, Netanyahu declaring, this is not just another skirmish, we are at war. They were caught off guard. They are admitting, we were caught off guard. Surprise attack, sneak attack. Hamas, militants, terrorists coming in and paragliders into the land, just totally caught off guard, surprised. But God wasn't. It didn't surprise God. We have friends, we have people we know who are on a tour in Jerusalem right now. I knew they were there, and the first thing I did was go to his Facebook page, and he was taking a selfie saying, uh... Just like four hours ago, we were on top of Masada and heard the explosions, and the tour guide got a a phone call and said, get everybody back to the hotel, and now they're sequestered in a Jerusalem hotel. Uh, They were caught off guard. I would have been too. We would all have been caught off guard, but God wasn't caught by surprise. He, He saw this coming. He sees everything coming. There are no surprises to God. The debate has, the conversation has died down, but about 10 years ago or so, there's a real resurgence of this idea of open theism. And it's just open theism, just kind of this idea that, that the end is everything's just kind of open-ended and God really doesn't know. And fortunately that was really squashed, I think fairly successfully these last few years uh, by people having to write books on this subject saying, no, uh, if for God to be who He says He is, to be eternal, to be all supreme. God knows. You don't catch God by surprise. And everything that He does for our sake is for our good. There's an old old hymn, I think written in the mid-late 1600s. It's a guy named Sam, Samuel Rodegast, and he wrote a beautiful song. It's been remade by a couple groups recently it's called whatever my god ordains is right his holy will abides i will be still whatever he do, does and follow wherever he guides he is my god though dark my road he holds me that i should not fall wherefore to him i leave it all whatever my god ordains is right he never will deceive me he leads me by the proper path i know he will not leave me I take content what he hath sent, his hand can turn my griefs away, and patiently I wait his day. Whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true, each morn anew, sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. His last verse, whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet am I not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave my all. Whatever God ordains is right. I don't usually repeat myself two weeks in a row, but I think this bears repeating. It's so fitting here again. James 4 Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I plan on getting on a plane in nine hours. It's my plans. But what I should say is, if the Lord wills. My great-grandmother took that literally. She always said, Lord willing, and then it was followed by her plans. And she said it all the time, the Lord willing. I did not know as a kid what she was referring to, but now I do. She's she's living out her faith in, in James, what James said. James said, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. Now most people don't take that literally, but if we don't literally say it all the time, Lord willing, I'm getting on a plane tonight, and I think it could be a good habit to start. But if we don't actually say that, it ought to be at least a mindset that we have. It's like, well, I'm gonna in five years do this and this. You don't know what's coming in your life in an hour's time. I was preaching here one morning, and a family that was here received a phone call in the middle of the sermon that. One of their children had been in a car accident, and fortunately, it was it, no one was seriously injured. But at the time, all they knew that they'd been in an accident. And the phone rang, and they got up and, and left. And um, when they got up that morning, they did not know what the day would bring. We've all had phone calls in our lives like that. We've all received notices. We've all woken up to news that we did not anticipate. And so we make plans, but we ought to say, if the Lord wills, because God is in control from the granular details all the way to our salvation. It's been said, I did not originate it, but I've repeated it many times. Because God is in control, and I owe Him my all. That if I get to the age to come, the reality of the future eternal life. If I get there and I stand before King Jesus, and we all have that opportunity here this morning to make it to the age to come and stand before King Jesus, and if Jesus were to ask the question, why do you think you're here? I sure hope I would not start my reply with, well, it's because I did whatever. No, I'm going to fall at my feet. I'm going to take that crown off, I'm going to cast it at my feet, and I'm going to say, I'm here for one reason, because I'm a, by nature, filthy, immoral, vile person, and so are you, and my righteousness is as filthy rags. I'm a dirt bag. I don't deserve anything related to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And if I'm saved, I'm saved by the righteousness of Christ. I'm going to take that crown off, cast it at his feet, and I'm going to bow in his presence. I'm going to say, I am here for one reason, and it's because of the, the gore and the violence of Calvary. That's why I'm here. Because you paid the ultimate sacrifice. You bore my sins that I committed, and you took them into your body. And you, in turn, said, here, take my righteousness, and I stand here righteous Not on my own righteousness. I stand here with imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Jesus, I'm here because of what you did. Go back. Notice in these verses that we read this morning. Just like in Ephesians 1 and 2 Timothy 1, we are not making anything happen. The Father before the ages began, He did this. At the proper time, the Son is revealed unto the world as a sacrifice for the sins of His people. It's Him. If you want to see our involvement, we go back to verse 1. Paul is a servant for the sake of the faith of God's elect. David Mathis captured it perfectly in this statement. I was trying to put it in words, and I, I read a fair amount of David Mathis, and I, I read this, and I said, Mathis said it better than I can. Let David say it. This is what he said. Faith is the instrument in us that receives Christ and His work for us and puts us in a right relationship with God. It's my faith. Now, I've already ventured into Titus 2. There's only three chapters. So I'll, I'll start landing with the third chapter. And we'll, probably the most well-known verse in Titus is Titus 3.5. So I'll briefly touch on that and then we'll dive on that in a couple weeks. Titus 3, 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So verse 5, it's not works done by us. I, I don't think we could repeat that and reiterate that enough, because no matter how much you believe that mentally, people struggle with this. That they're not saved by their own works we cannot save ourselves there are far too many good people who are secure in Christ saved sanctified filled with the Holy Spirit who still constantly question their salvation and live in fear that they're lost because they're not good enough or they had a bad day that flies in the face of everything in Scripture but it's the heart that puts out these emotions and it's all because they don't have a biblical foundation of what it means to be saved or even how they are saved. You cannot save yourself and yourself, and you cannot keep yourself saved. You're saved by the gospel. You're kept saved by the gospel. If I wake up tomorrow morning and I have any sort of mind and heart that is toward God, I'm not going to get up and say, well, thank you, Jesus, for saving me, but I got this today. If I wake up tomorrow and have any inkling toward God, I'm going to again say, I give you praise for that miracle. So Titus 3:6, Titus 3:6 lines up perfectly with Acts 2:32. Because we're Jesus' people, we're Holy Spirit people. Verse six, Titus 3, Jesus is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. Acts 2:32, and we're book of Acts people. we're Acts two people. The Father gives the promise of the Holy Spirit to the Son. The Son then turns and pours out the Holy Spirit upon his people on the day of Pentecost. This is exactly what Peter says in Acts 2.32. He says, what you're seeing here today is what God has done. God has given the promise to Jesus. He's going to later on say he's the one you crucified. So the Father gives the promise to the Son. Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. It's essential to understand that, to understand who God is. Paul writes like Peter says this in Acts 2 32 verbatim. Paul, I don't know if Paul knows that Peter said this, but Paul says this exact thing in Titus 3 6. It lines up parallels perfectly. The language is identical. We are Holy Spirit people because we are Jesus people. We have the spirit of Jesus Christ dwelling inside of us. That's who we are as people. I've said this several times here the last few months. I've often said, what we're called to do as the people of God is to lead people in worship unto God and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And the difference in that is this you can become a disciple of, of Buddha. There are, are a lot of Buddhist people around here. We can get in our car in five or six minutes. We can all drive past a place that sells, I don't know, there's at least a hundred, if not more, Buddhas sitting in the front yard of this business and you can go buy the the Buddha. There are people who are disciples, they they teach uh, others the ways of wisdom, the ways of living of a certain person. But the difference is those people are all dead. You're, You're becoming a disciple of somebody who is dead. The difference in becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ is that the one that we're becoming a disciple of is not dead. He died and rose again. It's the core, it's the center of, of, of what we believe. And not only, though, is not only is he not dead, he's not sitting here in the incarnation with us today either. We have his word. But greater than that, we have his spirit. Not the spirit of another God, not the spirit of another being. We have the spirit of Jesus Christ, the one who we are following his teachings and his examples. His spirit is among us and his spirit dwells inside of us. That is a marked difference of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You're not just following words in a book, even though they are divinely inspired and alive. The one that you are following also dwells inside of you. You follow the teachings of the one who you exist as a temple four in closing this morning the message that i'd want all of us to take away from these verses is that god is in control and god is sovereign we say we are a sovereign nation we are but there's no guarantee that we'll exist forever until jesus comes i have no reason to think that that's a guarantee we could collapse and fold in the future Greater empires that swayed greater influence in the world no longer exist. It would be arrogant for me to think that we'll be around forever. There's no guarantee that our nation will exist until the return of Christ. We say we're a sovereign nation, but God's kingdom is sovereign. And God's kingdom, because His word says, shall not have an end It is an eternal kingdom. And before we are citizens of this nation or any other nation, we are first citizens of a kingdom that is not just coming. The kingdom is here. The kingdom of God exists and rules and reigns today. And we are citizens of that kingdom. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray. Holy God, before the foundation of the world... Before the earth was formed, Lord, You saw us standing here. You looked from eternity past and saw on this October day in 2023, who would be here? You saw us. You elected us. You secured us. You called us to salvation. You called us to holiness. And You promised us eternal life. And in in that promise, we stand secure. So Lord, I pray this morning that while my words are simple and and often fall short i pray that your word which is eternal and god breathed and divine and supreme i pray that your word would be implanted into our hearts our spirits our souls our minds and i pray this morning lord that what has been spoken here today not my words but your word through the anointing of your spirit your word that goes out would find its place Lord, You said Your Word would not return void. So I pray this morning that through the power and the anointing of Your Holy Spirit that You would anoint what has been done here today and that it would keep us. That, Lord, that it would transform our thinking, it would change our mind, it would change our attitude, it would change the way that we make decisions, the way we think, the way that we walk, the way that we relate to others because we are kingdom people called unto salvation and called to be a holy, separate, godly, pious, righteous people. So I pray, Lord, this morning... Lord, that you would, even in this moment now, I pray for the miracle of transformation. Lord, that you would change us, that you would put inside of us a hunger and a desire and a longing to reflect your image more perfectly and to be transformed into the image of the one true and living God. And we ask this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. In dismissal this morning, can we lift our hands? Thank you, Jesus, this morning. We give you honor and praise and glory for your goodness for your spirit that is here today, we worship you this morning in the beauty of holiness. We, we bow in your presence. We cast our crown before you, Lord. Help us today to live humble lives, Lord, as we exalt you, that we give you all praise and all glory and all honor that is due to your name. Amen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you this morning.